0: Hi and welcome to another episode of A Shot Glass of Recovery with your host Julie, half of the dynamic duo that brings you the podcast, Two Sober Chicks. Hey y'all, good morning, good morning, good morning, it's a lovely day today, good morning, good morning to you. Uh, It's morning here, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. It's just almost 10 a.m. on Thursday morning. I am sitting in my husband's studio uh, in our house. He is a musician. Uh, It's funny because whenever I want to use his studio so that I can record because he's got all kinds of things on the ceiling and on the walls to make sure that there's no noise. And he'll come in here and make adjustments and clap his hands like I'm supposed to understand the the beauty of what he's done And the ear for I guess no echo um, Which I don't But anyways whenever I want to use it He like kind of scoffs at me Oh I think he's coming in Oh my god he's here I wonder if he'll come down Um, As if he's going to use it <laughs> Let's see if he comes in Anyways, um, it is morning and I am going to continue my series of story time, stories from the back of the big book. Uh, Today we're going to be reading from page 309. It's stories five, story five in part two of the. Is it part two? I always forget. Oh, thank you for making all that noise upstairs, husband, who doesn't know that I'm in here. Who knows? Anyways, it's page 309, and the story is called My Chance to Live. A.A. gave this teenager—oh, it's a teenager—the tools to climb out of her dark abyss of despair. I came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous at age 17—oh, God bless her. Or him. Who knows? A walking contradiction. On the outside, I was the portrait of a rebellious teenager with miles of attitude to spare— On the inside, I was suicidal, bloodied, and beaten. My stride spoke of confidence I didn't feel. My dress was that of a street-tough kid you didn't want to mess with. Inside, I was trembling with fear that someone would see through my defenses to the real me. If you saw who I really was, you would turn away in disgust or use my many weaknesses to destroy me. One way or the other, I was convinced I'd be hurt. I couldn't allow that to happen, so I kept the real me veiled behind a force field of rough-edged attitude. How I got to this place is still a mystery to me. I grew up in a loving, middle-class home. We had our problems, what family doesn't. But there was no abuse, verbal or physical, and it certainly couldn't be said that my parents didn't do the best they could by me. My grandfathers were alcoholic, and I was raised on stories of how it had ravaged their lives and the lives of those around them. Nope, I didn't want to be an alcoholic. Oh, this is a me too moment. In my early teen years, I began to be bothered by feelings that I didn't fit in. Until this point, I had ignored the fact that I wasn't one of the in crowd. I thought if I tried hard enough, I would fit in sooner or later. At 14, I stopped trying. I quickly discovered the soothing effects of a drink. Telling myself I would be more careful than my unfortunate grandparents, I set out to feel better. Drinking released from me the suffocating fear, Oh me too. the feelings of inadequacy, and the nagging voices at the back of my head that told me I would never measure up. All of those things melted away when I drank. The bottle was my friend, my companion, a portable vacation. Whenever life was too intense, alcohol would take the edge off or obliterate the problem altogether for a time. Blackouts became my goal. Though it may sound strange, they never frightened me. My life was ordered by school and by home. When I blacked out, I simply went on autopilot for the remainder of the day. The thought of going through my teen years without a single memory of its passing was very appealing. I hadn't given up on life, just childhood. Adults had it made. They made all the rules. Being a kid stunk. If I could hold out until I was 18, everything would turn around. I had no idea at the time how true those words would prove to be. Diving headfirst into what remained of the subculture leftover from the 60s, I took party till you throw up to new levels. I liked drinking. I liked the effect alcohol had on me. I didn't feel like throwing up at all. I soon discovered there were other substances I could take that would help me control my drinking. A little bit of this or that, and I could nurse a drink all night. Then I had a good time and didn't throw up. In no time at all, I had arrived, or so I thought. I had a bunch of friends to hang around with. We did exciting things, skipping school, taking road trips, drinking were all a part of this new life. It was great for a while. Getting hauled into the principal's office or being questioned by the police, things I would have been ashamed of before, were badges of honor. My ability to come through these events without giving away information or being unnerved brought me respect and trust among my peers. Outwardly, I was a young woman who was comfortable with herself, yet ever so slowly, these actions that I knew deep down were wrong started eating holes in me. My first reaction was to drink more. The outcome wasn't what I expected. I continued to raise my intake without the desired effect. Blackouts became few and far between. It didn't seem to matter how much I drank or in what combination with other substances. I could no longer find the relief I sought. Life at home was falling apart around me. Every time I turned around, I'd done something to make my mother cry. At school, they were looking for ways to be rid of me. The vice principal made it a point to explain his position to me in no uncertain terms. Straighten up or you are out on your ear. For good. I started the painful spiral to my bottom a scant two years into my drinking career. Me too. Knowing I had to graduate, I made adjustments to my lifestyle to stay in school. I watched as my friends continued to have fun. A depression settled over me, encasing me in a gray haze. I couldn't skip school anymore. My boyfriend came home from boot camp with another girl. My mother was still crying, and it was all my fault. There there were several attempts at suicide. I'm grateful to say I wasn't very good at it. Then I decided, since I wasn't having fun anymore, I'd quit drinking and using. I mean, why waste good booze if you're going to feel just as bad drunk as sober? I held no hope for feeling better when I stopped. I just didn't want to waste the booze. It never occurred to me that I couldn't stop. Every day I concocted some new method of staying sober. If I wear this shirt, I won't drink. If I'm with this person or in this place, I won't drink. It didn't work. Every morning I woke up with a new resolve to stay sober. too. With few exceptions, by noon I was so messed up I couldn't tell you my name. The voices in my head became even more and more vicious. With each failed attempt, my head said, See? You failed again. You knew you wouldn't feel better. You're a loser. You're never going to beat this. Why are you even trying? Just drink until you're dead. On the rare days I managed to make it past noon, there were few brave enough to get within a hundred yards of me. I was not a nice person sober. I was angry and frightened, and I wanted you to feel as terrible as I did. A few times I had drinks pushed on me. Here, drink this, then maybe you won't be so difficult. I always had a nasty retort and then took what was offered. Toward the end, I prayed every night for God to take me in my sleep, and I cursed him in the morning for allowing me to live. It was never my intention to end up in AA. If someone mentioned perhaps I drank too much, I laughed at them. I didn't drink any more than my friends. I never got drunk when I didn't want to, never mind that I always wanted to. I couldn't be an alcoholic. I was too young. Life was my problem. Other substances were my problem. If I could just get a handle on things, then I could drink. I got a job as a waitress at a local pancake house. Our late hours attracted a wide variety of clientele including some members of Alcoholics Anonymous. They were not my favorite people to wait on. They, in fact, drove me to drink. They were loud, hard to please. They table hopped and didn't tip very well. I waited on the same bunch for six weeks in a row before finally being granted the night off. Now, I had been thinking that my problem was insanity and what happened on my night off clinched it. I missed this motley crew who had plagued my existence for over a month. I missed the laughter and their bright smiles. I went and had coffee with them. Through a chain of events I chose to believe were the actions of my higher power, they convinced me to go to a meeting. I was told it was a special AA anniversary. Open meeting, which meant that anyone could attend. I thought to myself, what could it hurt? I waited on these people. Perhaps it will help me to better understand them. On the designated evening, my husband is FaceTiming me. Hi. Hey, where'd you go? I'm recording a podcast. Oh, you're in my room? Yes. Sorry. It's okay. Pardon the interruption. I don't edit. Neither does Lisa. Lisa. On the designated evening, I arrived to find that the anniversary meeting was the following week, but they took a vote and decided I could stay. I was shocked and humbled. These people wanted me around? It was a concept I had trouble accepting. I stayed and listened, careful to let them know I didn't have a problem. <laughs> I attended the anniversary meeting the following week with no intention of ever going to another meeting. I wasn't an alcoholic. I had other problems that needed attention, then I would be okay. The next week, a friend who was admittedly an alcoholic asked me if I was going to the meeting. My head went into hyperspeed. If this person thought I needed to go, perhaps I did. But I wasn't an alcoholic. I attended the meeting and decided drugs were my problem. (laughs) I stopped using them completely from that night forward. The result was a sharp increase in my drinking. I knew this would never do. Staggering home one night, it occurred to me that perhaps if I stopped drinking just for a while, maybe I could get a handle on things and then I could drink again. It took about 3 months for me to realize I was my problem and drinking made my problem much worse. The other substances were simply tools to control my drinking. Given a choice, I'd take a drink over the other stuff in a heartbeat. Angry doesn't begin to describe how I felt when I had to admit I was an alcoholic. Even though I was grateful not to be nuts, as I'd first supposed, I felt cheated. All the people I saw sitting around the tables of Alcoholics Anonymous had been granted many more years of drinking than I. It just wasn't fair. Someone pointed out to me that life was rarely fair. I wasn't amused, but extending my drinking career simply wasn't an option anymore. 90 days sober cleared my thinking enough to make me realize I'd hit bottom. If I were to go back to drinking, it would be just a matter of time before one of two things happened. I'd succeed at suicide, or I'd start the life of the real living dead. I'd seen what the latter looked like, and real death was preferable. At this point, I surrendered. I admitted I was an alcoholic without a clue what to do about it. Many of the people around me wanted me to go to treatment, but I resisted. I didn't want the kids at school to know what was going on. If I went to treatment, they'd all know within a week. More importantly, I was afraid. I was afraid the treatment center would test me and say, you're not an alcoholic, you're just crazy. My heart knew this wasn't true, though. My head took a bit more convincing. Oh, the dreaded mind. The thought of having AA taken away from me was terrifying. AA was my anchor in a sea of confusion. Anything that might pose a threat to my sense of security was quickly thrust away. I didn't have anything against treatment centers then, nor do I now. I simply didn't want to go, and I didn't. I did stay sober. One summer with people who enjoyed life sober was all it took for me to want sobriety more than I wanted to drink. I will not tell you I did everything I was told, when I was told, how I was told, because I didn't. Like most people new to the program, I set out to find an easier, softer way. As the big book suggests, I could not. When I couldn't find an easier, softer way, I looked for a person with the magic wand, the one person in AA who would make me feel all better right now. This was a frustrating task, and I finally realized that if I wanted this life, I was going to have to do what the others had done. No one made me drink, and no one was going to make me sober. This program is for people who want it, not people who need it. If everyone who needed AA showed up, we would be bursting at the seams. Unfortunately, most never make it to the door. I believe I was one of the lucky ones, not just because I found this program at such a young age, I feel fortunate that I found AA at all. My approach to drinking brought me to the jumping-off place described in the big book much faster than anyone could have imagined. I'm convinced if I had continued on my course, I wouldn't have survived much longer. I don't believe I was smarter than anyone else, as I'm often told by those who came in at a later age. It was my time, my chance to live, and I took it. If there had still been joy in my drinking or even a remote chance of the joy returning, I would not have stopped drinking when I did. Me neither. No one who drank as I did wakes up on the edge of the abyss one morning and says, Things look pretty scary. I think I'd better stop drinking before I fall in. I was convinced I could go as far as I wanted and then climb back out when it wasn't fun anymore. What happened was, I found myself at the bottom of the canyon thinking I'd never see the sun again. AA didn't pull me out of that hole. It did give me the tools to construct a ladder with the 12 steps. Sobriety is nothing like I thought it would be. At first it was one big emotional roller coaster full of sharp highs and deep lows. My emotions were new, untested, and I wasn't entirely certain I wanted to deal with them. I cried when I should have been laughing. I laughed when I should have cried. Events I thought were the end of the world turned out to be gifts. It was all very confusing. Slowly, things began to even out. As I began to take the steps of recovery, my role in the pitiful conditions of my life became clear. If asked what the two most important things in recovery are, I would have to say willingness and action. I was willing to believe that AA was telling me Sorry about that. <laughs> the outro's going. Okay. Um I was willing to believe that AA was willing was telling me the truth. I wanted to believe it was true in a way I cannot relate in words. I wanted this thing to work. Then, I began to take the course of action prescribed. Following the principles laid out in the big book has not always been comfortable, nor will I claim perfection. I have yet to find a place in the big book that says, now you've completed the steps, have a nice life. The program is a plan for a lifetime of daily living. There have been occasions when the temptation to slack off has won. I view each of these as learning opportunities. When I am willing to do the right thing, I am rewarded with an inner peace no amount of liquor could ever provide. When I am unwilling to do the right thing, I become restless, irritable, and discontent. It is always my choice. Through the 12 steps, I have been granted the gift of choice. I am no longer at the mercy of a disease that tells me the only answer is to drink. If willingness is the key to unlock the gates of hell, It is action that opens those doors so that we may walk freely among the living. Over the course of my sobriety, I have experienced many opportunities to grow. I have had struggles and achievements. Through it all, I have not had to take a drink, nor have I ever been alone. Willingness and action have seen me through it all, with the guidance of a loving higher power and the fellowship of the program. When I'm in doubt, I have faith that things will turn out as they should. When I am afraid, I reach for the hand of another alcoholic to steady me. Life has not heaped monetary riches upon my head, nor have I achieved fame in the eyes of the world. My blessings cannot be measured in those terms. No amount of money or fame could equal what has been given me. Today, I can walk down any street, anywhere, without the fear of meeting someone I've harmed." Today, my thoughts are not consumed with craving for the next drink or regret for the damage I did on the last drunk. Me too. Today, I reside among the living, no better, no worse than any of God's other children. Today, I look in the mirror when putting on my makeup and smile rather than shy away from looking myself in the eye. Me too. Today, I fit in my skin. I am at peace with myself and the world around me. Growing up in AA, I have been blessed with children who have never seen their mother drunk. I have a husband who loves me simply because I am, and I have gained the respect of my family. What more could a broken-down drunk ask for? Lord knows it is much more than I ever thought possible, and ever so much more than I'd served. All because I was willing to believe AA just might work for me, too. Oh, that was so good. Sometimes I feel... When I hear people in meetings um, who I think are very different from me, I sort of feel myself tuning out a little bit. And at the beginning, I was like, what could a teenager's wisdom offer to me? Oh, how arrogant my ego can be. Turns out a lot. There is a spot that I underlined on page, the second page of the story. The bottle was my friend, my companion, a portable vacation. Whenever life was too intense, alcohol would take the edge off or obliterate the problem altogether for a time. So that was why I loved drinking because like many of us in the program and not in the program, like many an addict, uh, life is very intense and my emotions feel very big. It is a common symptom of a unstable childhood Uh, where we don't learn as children to regulate our nervous system. So a lot of us will go from 0 to 100 instead of what a normal person does, which is 0 to 10 to 20 to 30 to 40 and so on. And so the intensity of our emotions drives us to do something that tamps down those emotions. And so I could not settle down. Um, I remember just even to do housework. Man, I did my best housework drinking. All of that That's why alcohol became a best friend, which then the book tells us is like a boomerang and then turns to shred us into a million pieces. But it just made everything breathable. So I definitely identified with that. Also, I did a post on Instagram a little while ago when it talks about the choice, uh, the being granted the gift of choice. So choice is a very difficult concept to understand when you are not an addict because there is a presumption that at our bottom, close to our bottom, middle way to our bottom, we have a choice not to drink or not to use, which for any of us that have had that feeling beyond what a craving is, it's like an impulse, we know that there's no choice and to understand that for people that aren't in recovery, I will often tell them about the neural pathways and the addicted brain and how the impulse and the drive to take a drink and another drink or a drug and another drug or a behavior and another behavior like sex or eating disorders comes from the same place in the brain that is responsible for fight or flight So or eating. So the impulse to eat, uh, to have sex or to fight or flight is all the same place that the ad, the addiction impulse comes from so it doesn't feel like a choice it feels like if I don't do this I'm going to die that's what it feels like so I love that this story pointed out that once we start to try and live a life of recovery and sobriety we have a chance to have a choice There is a lot of wisdom in the 90 and 90, 90 meetings in 90 days, i.e. one meeting a day for three months, because you start to form a new neural pathway, which gives you a choice. So if you think of your neural pathways or your brain as a field of wheat, and you have walked down the same path every day for every month and every year of the last however many long years, there's a very clear path. You come to this field and you're like, oh, I'm going this way. And when you start to live a life of recovery and sobriety and you start to dry out, you start to walk down a different path. So when you get to that same field, you're actually like, hey, wait a second, there's another way. And so we get the chance to make that choice, to have that pause, which we didn't have before. Those of us that have had problems with rage have the same thing. You don't feel like you have a choice. You just blow up in that second and then you're off to the races. But if you have even just a one second pause, that gives you your hope. So for anybody listening who feels like there's no hope in recovery and it just feels impossible that you won't be able to stop drinking or stop using, there's an entire fellowship of people in AA that are there for you. Like this woman said in her story, she's never been alone. And so you just have to take the hand of someone else that's gone before you and walked a different path to see that it is possible because our disease is the biggest liar and it will tell us we can't do it. But we know different. And once you're exposed to the truth, something starts to happen. So I encourage you, whether you're new in the program or old in the program, just to take that hand that's offered to you. AA is almost everywhere. It's almost everywhere physically. It's everywhere virtually virtually. You can find a meeting at any time by just Google searching AA meetings in your area. And they're great. They're not my favorite. I'd prefer not to. In a pinch, they work great. Um, I like what happens in a physical meeting. It's something that you can't find online. But that's just my preference. So thanks for being my hand in the dark. When I am doing this podcast, I feel like I'm with you and you're with me. And that helps me go on another day. Get yourself a big book if you don't have a big book, because these stories are amazing. I started with the stories. And then I went to the 12 and 12, the sister companion to the big book, only to be taken in conjunction with the big book. I did that because that's how I started to understand the steps, because the first 165 pages of the big book didn't make a lot of sense to me. And this is my gold. This is my recovery Bible right here. I have my Bible Bible and my recovery Bible. And I love them. Uh, let's just take a minute to take a breath. Well, as always, if you want to uh, reach out to Lisa or myself or me or I, you can email us to soberchicks at gmail.com. And as I mentioned, you can find us on Instagram and DMS at two sober chicks. Have a wonderful 24 and keep coming back.